I'm sort of very big on putting KPIs in place because where the model is broken in most companies is the business units have all of the authority and security has all of the responsibility. Welcome back to another episode of The Zero Hour brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today's guest is Dr. Eric Cole, CEO and founder of Secure Anchor Consulting. And the man's career is pretty crazy. Started at the CIA all the way through Lockheed, McAfee, and now um, advising Fortune 500 companies and has a really unique perspective on security. He brings the energy, helps to bridge the security and business gap, and also plays throughout some risk scenarios with us. Yeah, he was he was a good sport about that. So without further ado, let's get into it with Dr. Eric Cole. Dr. Eric Cole, welcome to the Zero Hour. So excited to have you. It is a pleasure to be here. Yeah, um, very engaging on social uh, that's where I, I first caught wind of you. So we're really excited to dig in to get to know you in terms of your experience, but also want to um, put you through the ringer, so to speak. I got a few uh, real world examples. Want to want to kind of test your knowledge and also get, really get feedback on, on what um, you might advise uh, clients to do. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, you have a, a storied career starting in the CIA. Uh, various sectors in the in the private space in the public space including lockheed martin mcafee i guess given the breadth of that career i'm curious to know what are some of the key lessons you've learned along the way as you've progressed through those stages that you now take into your advisory business absolutely so the first one is to me in security to be really good at the defense you have to understand the offense so I spent eight years at the CIA as a professional hacker, breaking into systems, compromising mm -hmm. systems. And what I realized is it's not this magical, mysterical thing that some people think of. It's very systematic of how you go about breaking in and compromising a system. And to me, it really comes down to sort of three fundamentals. If you're going to compromise any system, you need a visible IP. You need an open port and you need a vulnerability to service. Now, yes, if you're compromising a user, it's still the same things where mm -hmm. you need to have a user or a target. You need to have an avenue in and you need to have a compromise point. So after doing that for eight years, I'll be honest with you, I got bored because it's easy, right? It's just <laughs> easy to always break in. And that's when I really switched to the defense. And I learned my second big lesson, which is you're never going to have 100% security if you have functionality. The only way to be 100% right. secure is to give up technology, shut it off. I sometimes jokingly say, if you want to be 100% secure, it's easy. Become Amish, right? Yes. Horse and buggy, candles, <laughs> yeah. no electricity, and you're good to go. Pa so, paper and pen, totally unhackable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of people miss that even today where I still get clients and customers where like, we want to be 100% secure. We want to make sure an attack never, and that's just not realistic in what happens out there. So that's sort of the second big one. The, the, the other big one, which is less security, but more personal growth is, I believe everyone inside them has a technical side and a business side. So, mm -hmm. so one thing I really try to push people is 
tap into that entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, a lot of geeks love being safe and comfortable and working for these big companies, which is great. But, but essentially, one of my favorite, favorite quotes is if you're not willing to work hard and live your dream, somebody will pay you to fulfill their dream. And, and I feel that so <laughs> many technical people are getting paid $120,000, $130,000, and they're making somebody else two to three million. That they're making somebody else right. rich, fulfilling their dreams. And I'm like, start your own company. You don't have to go in and be a billion dollar company, but, but at least if you earn a dollar, keep a dollar as opposed to most techies earn a dollar for their company and they're keeping 10 or 20 cents of that dollar. So that, that's my other big thing is really encouraging people to tap in, explore. It's funny because in cybersecurity, we're supposed to be risk adverse. But when it comes to my life and the right. business, I mean, I I'm taking risks all the time. So it's sort of this contrary to this cybersecurity geek where I, I love extreme sports. I love base jumping. I love all those things. So it's with my clients, I'm like, don't take risks. But in my personal life, I'm like, risks really so crazy there. So, so it's sort of this interesting balance. And I think that's the, the final lesson learned is you got to have balance in life. Because I see some of these really smart techies and they just get totally and completely burned out. I mean, one of my favorite, favorite mentors, I mean, brilliant guy, but just burnt himself out. It was like John McAfee. I mean, that, that mm -hmm. guy was brilliant, but he just pushed himself too hard and never had an outlet. So to me, as security professionals and in any field, you got to make sure you have that balance where you work super hard, but you have some release outside of work to keep things in perspective. Well, I think that's also, we're going to explore that that risk reward a little bit more. I mean, I think that's the metaphor there is like, how are you balancing risk in the organization? But I do want to go back to this idea of 100% security, because it strikes me that one, the, the mental model, if you think you can achieve 100% security, you're probably underprepared for the breach that does inevitably happen, right? You're, if you're working towards 100%, you're kind of not managing the the 50 to 80% as well, because you're kind of striving for the near impossible. Um, and, and to me, I think part of it is how we've evolved in the real physical world. Because most of us, if we really break it down, will recognize that when you get in an automobile or when you walk across mm -hmm. the street, there are risks associated with that. Every time you get in the car, there's a chance you can get in an accident. Every time you walk across the street, there's a chance somebody can run you over. But we've developed such good adaptive patterns that many of us don't think about that. When we get in a car, we don't think about we're going to get into an accident. When we walk across, the, well, I do, but I'm a, I'm a weird, weirdo guy. But when we walk across the street, we're not like, somebody's going to run us over, right? We just, we look left, we look right, we wait for the crossing. We, we, we built controls. Exactly in place. So we tend to forget about the risk, but we don't realize is in cyberspace, it's very immature still. We don't have those controls. Mm -hmm. So many people just assume I'm setting up a website, I'm going online, I'm doing e-commerce. It's got to be safe and it's got to be 100% secure, but they realize nothing in life in the physical or cyberspace is 100% secure, but they forget many of those fundamental lessons. For sure. Yeah, I love that. And you know, things are constantly changing. So if you can't, if you're not adapting or ready to respond to that, you can't be 100% secure. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's a funny thing, because I had a client, I just got off the call with them. I did an assessment for them a year ago. 
And we found a bunch of vulnerabilities, we fixed them, and we said, you have appropriate level of security. And uh, they were PCI companies, so they said, can you just give us another letter that we're still secure? And I said, well, no. And they said, but, but you told us last year, we were like, yeah, but a lot of things are changing. And this is the best part. <laughs> you guys are going to love this. They're like, we didn't change anything over the last 12 months, so we're still secure. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, you, you, I mean, it's like every moment of every day you change. <laughs> yeah, and it's like a little thing happened this year. You know, it's a small thing, the pandemic. I'm sure it completely altered like business processes and new technologies that needed to be licensed and stuff. So yeah, for sure. No, no, no changes needed. Uh, are we even going to go into the COVID? I mean, come on. <laughs> no, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. No, we'll, we'll just ignore it for today. <laughs> so, so before we dig into some specific issues, knowing what you know, um, the work that you're doing for your clients, what is top of mind for you in terms of what security professionals should be tackling in the near term? To, to me, it's really what I call back to the basics because I feel like today we're so enamored with the latest and greatest. Like I talk to tech folks and they're like, oh, we got to get the latest AI, artificial intelligence, behavioral analytics in place. And, and to me, what I'm seeing organizations getting compromised is they have unpatched systems Mm -hmm. They don't know where their data is and their users are still clicking on links. And, and, and that's the basic. So I, I had an interview earlier today where uh, a report came out and they're like, attackers are getting so sophisticated and advanced. And I said, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Yes, <laughs> attacks are causing more damage. Attacks are making more money, but I do not believe any of that hype that the adversary is getting more sophisticated. I actually think they're getting less sophisticated because let's face it, if you're a cyber criminal and you want to break in, you're going to do the easiest, simplest, most straightforward method that gives you the best results. And why should I go in and try to build zero-day exploits when I can send an email with a link? And I'll tell you, if I do a subject line, that says three of your coworkers got infected with COVID, click this link to see if you had exposure. 99% of the population is clicking on that link and you're in their system. So to me, the adversary is getting less sophisticated, but we're getting sloppy and we're not just doing the basic measures. And one thing I push with my clients all the time is why do we use email as a file transfer mechanism? Why are we allowing mm -hmm. there to be attachments and embed? Well, we, I've had clients where they've had so much attacks that we actually block all embedded links and we block all attachments coming from external unknown addresses. And most of the time, you know what the impact of the organization is? Zero. Nobody even notices. So we tend to make this bigger deal of how critical it is to run the business when in reality, it's just about we got to get back to the fundamental blocking and tackling, patching systems, encrypting data, protecting the keys and controlling our end users. And um, and what about in the in the longer term? Do you think that that's you know, we have more channels than we did, say, in the 90s and even the early 2000s. So is it that the, is, is it, if the attacks aren't more sophisticated, is it that the 
threat surface is fragmented, so it's it's kind of distracting the it's pulling the attention of security teams in multiple directions. So they kind of forget to apply the basics to each channel and then kind of come back to deal with the you know the zero days. They're just you know I, I get the sense that it could be the struggle is the they don't know what to concentrate on in the threat surface. Right. Yeah. And, and to me, it's what I've nicknamed the rule of 90%. And what mm -hmm. I mean by that is this, if we look at any of the big companies and I don't like naming names, I mean, pe people know who they are, but it's not our business to point fingers because everyone can have exposures. But if you look at some of the big breaches where 500 million records were stolen, 700 million records, and it was because they had an unpatched system that contained critical data that wasn't properly encrypted. Now let's be honest. Do we believe that company that was spending $20 million on security a year and had 300 people on their security team was doing no patching? They were doing no configuration management and they were doing no protection of data. No, but what it came down to is 90% of their servers were patched. 90% mm -hmm. of their data was protected. And when you have a big company where things are changing so quickly and rolling out new systems, 90% is pretty good. My, my daughter's a freshman in college. She just got a 90% on her math test and she was thrilled, right? So right. in many cases, <laughs> people are super happy with a 90, right? That's an A, A minus, depending on the grading curve. The problem is when you're looking at a company that has thousands of servers, when you have 90%, that could still be 20 or 30 servers yeah. that are protected. Mm -hmm. that, that can still be a pretty large amount. And that's where I think the issue is where people confuse 100% patching with 100% security. I have clients come back when they say 100% of your internet facing systems need to be fully patched. Oh, but Eric, you said we can't do 100%. No, no, no. I said you can't do 100% security, but you can absolutely have 100% inventory and 100% mm -hmm patching of external systems. So I, I think we're making it more complicated. And what I always recommend to clients is start with the big attack vector, which is going to be external servers. Make mm -hmm. sure those are fully patched and then create rules. One of my rules is any system that's visible from the internet never contains critical data. That's a non-negotiable. If companies follow that one simple rule, the breach of 500 million records wouldn't have happened. The breach of 700 million records wouldn't have happened because they, they violated a fundamental rule. So to me, we have to start making cybersecurity simpler, fundamental rules, and then push those out to all the business units. Yeah, in the words of a former strength training coach, it's brilliance in the basics, right? Yeah. It's like you could, you could do power cleans and snatches all day long, but maybe you can't do like 25 push-ups like clean, right? So yeah. it's going to feel brilliant in the basics. So um, cool. So I want to, I want to change uh, direction here a little bit to tackle some of the big business issues behind security. So um, some current trends, a little bit of the zeitgeist. So Lately, we've seen a lot about how the rapid transition to remote work has elevated CISOs and CIOs in, in terms of board profile. In fact, the Wall Street Journal was coming out with a lot of CIOs are now going to get a seat at the table because their value has been recognized in, in making the business just operate continuity, agility. But paradoxically, we're also seeing articles that a lot of those boards lack tech savvy. So it strikes me as there's going to be this big disconnect between we got to bring the CIO on because we got to 
get information about the technical systems. But if the board can't digest that information or that reporting, that seems like a, a critical piece. So what would be your advice in terms of to those CIOs, how to bridge that divide, how to make those translations uh, to a business audience? To me, when you're looking at a really good CIO or CISO or anyone in the technology security with a chief in front of their name, their main job is to focus on strategy and translation. So mm -hmm. if you're a CIO or a CISO, what you need to be able to do is talk techie with the engineers, translate it into business language, and then communicate that to the executive team. To me, the big problem we have is CIO or CISO is an advancement for technical people. So mm -hmm. if you look at a technical engineer, they feel the way they get promoted is to move up to the ranks and eventually become a CIO or a CISO in the organization. And to me, that is the big problem or issue out there. Because if you have a CIO or CISO that is very tactical or technical, they're gonna fail. Because they're gonna go in to the executive team and geek out and the executives are just gonna be like, what, what are you talking about? But right? right? the test I always give to folks is, and this shows whether you're gonna be a good CISO or not. If you're sitting there right now and you hear about one of your servers in the data center just got compromised, one of your servers in the data center just got popped and data is being exfiltrated out of the organization, what do you do? And if your answer is, I run into the data center, and I jump on the keyboard, you would be an awful CISO. If your answer was, I step back, I pick up the phone, and I call my team and implement the incident response plan and focus on strategy, you would be a great CISO. But, but the problem is too many CISOs can't speak the language, and therefore they've had seats at the table and have been kicked out. And I talk to a lot of CEOs and what CEOs tell me, the two things they can't stand about chief information security officers is they don't speak English and they don't <laughs> understand business, right? And, and that's what you have to do. If you're going to sit in the boardroom and you're going to have a seat at the table, you better recognize it's all about dollars and cents. It's all about running a business, profitability, dollars and cents. And when I go in and brief boards, I have a single slide. And that single slide says, here's the top risks, here's the likelihood of occurring, here's the cost if it occurs, and here's the cost to fix it. It's all financial because that's the language of executives. And if you can't speak financial, you're not going to be a good chief. That's interesting. Yeah, we had uh, previously talked to two CISOs, Anthony Johnson and Larry Whiteside Jr. They had a similar test, which was they would ask, since it was an interview, uh, tell me how you sell your products. You know, and it's like, if they can't yeah. answer the fundamental questions about like, yeah. one, what do you sell and how do you sell it? It means that they, they don't have a foot inside the P&L of the business that just like yeah. on the architecture side. So that's, that's an interesting distinction. Yeah, yeah. I, I do a lot of vCISO and help companies hire CISOs. And one of the things I always do during the interview is I'll take a profit and loss statement and I'll put it in front of them. And I'll say, okay, tell me which business unit is the most profitable for the company. Tell me which business unit you're gonna spend the most money on. And if they can't very quickly 
and navigate and see how to do it, then I'm not going to hire them. Now, now, once again, I don't expect them to be an accountant. You shouldn't mm-hmm. know how to create it, but you should know how to read basic financial statements if you're going to have a seat at the executive table. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. You know, speaking of finance, the finances of the business, Dell recently published the 2020 edition of their digital transformation index. Uh, a lot of interesting shifts uh, clearly brought on by the pandemic, such as the acceleration of remote work technology and strengthening cybersecurity defenses. And yet in, the, in that same survey, it's still the same barrier to progress that shows up every year, the lack of budget. Yep. What, what is your advice to clients on this tug of war between wanting more cyber defense and funding it appropriately? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a great question because that, that's the problem is a lot of security people will bankrupt the company to be secure, right? They, they <laughs> want more, they, they, they want more, they want more, they want more. But one of my things that I specialize in, and, and it always sort of fascinates executives and tends to piss off technical people that don't understand it, is I go into most companies and r- right now I'm going to frustrate a lot of security people. I think most companies are overspending on security, not underspending. I, I, I think where they're spending money is not very productive. And, and here's the simple test. Look at all the technology that your company has purchased over the last five years and how much of it are you really using? How much of that functionality is really in play? Because you, you buy a tech and then two years later when there's a new problem, you don't go back to the old tech and say, can it get us 70, 80% of the way there? We buy something new and we buy something new. And in my experience, most companies are using between 27 to 32% of the technology they purchased. So they need to do a better job of utilizing what they have. And here's the real issue. The reason why I say they're overspending is because the, you, when you spend enough money, you need people to support it. Mm-hmm. So, so let's look at the basic problem. The basic problem is if you go back to any major breach and you do post-mortem, the technology they had in place detected the attack. Every single time, if you go and know what to look for, they had technology in place that alerted. What was the issue? They were sending a thousand alerts, but their team could only handle 50. So if you're getting a thousand alerts and you can only handle 50, what's going to happen? You're not going to respond to the right ones. So check this out. The way they solve the problem when that breach occurs is they give them more money. So now you buy more tech and now you have 5,000 alerts instead of a thousand and you still have the same team. So to me, what you need to do is decrease the tech. And if your team can only handle 50 alerts a day, you need to tune it down to only get the highest priority 50. And then what it comes down to is this, show the execs the value. Say, this is what Mm -hmm. you're spending and this is what you're getting. If you want us to get more stuff, then you increase the spend. And then this way, it's sort of a a pay for as you go. So as they increase the security budget, they're seeing the value. But I will tell you right now today, most companies spend more on security. And if you ask the executive team, they don't see any value. So so I think a lot of that stuff where we're underspending, I think is wrong. We're underutilizing the tech we have and we're not showing a proper return on investment, because let's ask a real simple question. If you could show real value, wouldn't the executive spend more money? 
If, if you can go in and increase profitability, if you can increase revenue, they would spend money on that. So the reality that we don't like to talk about because it's sometimes painful is the reason why security is not getting the budget and the resources they want is because we're not doing a good job of showing the return on investment that we're currently getting. Well, yeah, I think that comes back to your point about the business acumen, right? If you if you can't articulate to a board or the executive leadership team the the business outcomes that are derived from securing, you know, X part of your architecture, then it's harder to justify. Because again, that's very abstract. And despite all the technology, our brains are still hardwired from 150,000 years ago. And it's like, I need to see, I need to see it in front of me. I need to see something concrete. So yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Well, that actually brings me to this portion of the interview. So we're very keen to get your insights on two different risk scenarios that are tied to business outcomes. So I was going to take the first, which has to do with roles and responsibilities. Um, and then Ashley will take the second. So if you're game, we'll, we'll put you in the hot seat here for a second. So <laughs> let's go, let's go. I love it. Right. I love being in the hot seat. It's great. All right. One of my lines so, of business is expert witness work where, where I get the post. So I'm used to being mm -hmm. in the hot seat. So let's go. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So yeah. And I think this, this also this speaks to a lot of what we've already covered. So we've seen companies, um, you know, as Ashley said, adopt a lot of technologies needed to suddenly shift from office to remote work. And and some one example would be the IT team is responsible for procuring a collaboration platform, say Slack or Microsoft Teams, something to just connect the workforce. And then there's confusion about who's responsible for certain risks inside that platform. So, for example, IT procures the licenses. Is HR then responsible for like conduct issues inside of the chats is compliance monitoring for PII is legal dealing with, you know, IP or data loss, security monitoring. So, so I'm talking about these technologies that come in through one department. And then there's like this confusion in the flow chart between who owns what part of it. So how do you advise your clients on how to coordinate on those issues? Because these new digital technologies seem to, really blow your traditional silos to pieces. Right. You, 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 to me, what I always go back to is the fundamental unit in any company are your different BUs, your, your different mm -hmm. business units. So, so if you look at your high level org chart, you, you have your different business units, your engineering, each of your product lines, HR and each of those. And what has worked really well is giving them key performance indicators. So you go in and marketing has sort of key performance indicators, sales has sort of key KPIs and each of the business units do. And to me, that's the model we need to follow with security. So if you go in and we say, okay, we need Slack in place to support a remote workforce, then HR should go in, write policies, security should go in and say, okay, here's what they have to do. And then we create KPIs to measure each of those business units. So now if we go in and a business unit is allowing people to send sensitive proprietary data over Slack, that VP of that business unit gets penalized in his performance review, just like if he missed margins, if he missed profitability mm -hmm. or he missed other areas. So to me, I'm sort of very big on putting KPIs in place because where the model is broken in most companies 
is the business units have all of the authority and security has all of the responsibility. Yes, I mean, right. It's I like mean, the, the CISO is sometimes <laughs> the chief incident scapegoat officer is the joke. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the funniest one was we've been, been alluding to the, the hotel breach of 500 million records. I mean, that's a perfect example. That CISO was telling that director who was responsible for that server, this is an exposure, this is a vulnerability, fix it, fix it, fix it. And they basically gave him the virtual middle finger. That CISO went to the board of directors and said, this is a huge exposure. This is going to cause major problems. And they're like, that business unit is making 40% margins. Leave them alone. The breach happens exactly as the CISO predicted. Oh. And what did they do? They fired the CISO. Because the Yikes. CISO had to... So, so that, that model is broken where you have that responsibility. So we need to go in and do a better job of pushing the responsibility with KPIs to the people that have the authority. The other big one is, and this is one where, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. but if we really went back to 2018 and we saw where things were going, maybe we didn't predict the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was going to be something different. But as a really good strategy and forward-looking person, we should have recognized that a remote workforce was inevitable. We should have For realized sure. that yeah, it was accelerating and have been more proactive in pushing that. And we've had clients where we had what we call Vision 2020, where by January 1st, 2020, we had them completely to an environment and we called it location agnostic. So whether you were in the office, whether you were at home, whether you were in a hotel, it was the same exact experience. We had things in the cloud, we had Colo, we had VPNs, and we just recognized that was going to be the future. Now, we didn't really predict the epidemic, but they were prepared. So when March and April of 2020 happened, they were already there. So to me, a lot of this just shows gaps and not being forward thinking enough as a security person, because what you got to recognize is if you wait for a crisis, functionality leads and security will always be left behind. So the oh, trick the truth, of a good yeah. leader is you need to predict where the future's going and minimizes those crises so security can be baked in. Yeah, I think that, I mean, also coming back to the KPI thing makes a lot of sense because you frequently hear the refrain like cybersecurity is everyone's problem. I mean, that's like in every awareness training module ever. But if unless you put real pain to it, you know, like put your money where your mouth is, like it's going to be difficult to hold those units accountable for sure. Exactly. So that, that lines up nicely with our second scenario if we're thinking about risk versus revenue. Um, you gave a good example of the hotel breach and we often see instances where security or compliance are seen as blockers by growth teams like marketing and sales. In one instance, we had a customer where sales needed to adopt WhatsApp in Latin America, and for months, security said no. Then some teams went rogue, did it anyway, made a lot of money. Uh, it's natural for security to hesitate since they're going to bear the responsibility for breaches or data loss. But what is your advice to security leaders confronting this issue of balancing risk and revenue? To, to me, and I'll explain it, but, but the short answer is always say yes. 
Somebody, oh, wow. Yes, <laughs> we have never heard that answer. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I'll give you a quick story. When I started working at the CIA, and this was back in the early 90s, and I was working in the Department of Security. After I went through all the briefing, my training was an older gentleman. He put his arm around me and said, son, we're going to send you to a lot of meetings. And the first meeting you go to, they're going to go in and explain a lot of stuff and, and sort of act like you're thinking really hard, sort of hold your head a little bit, take some notes. And then when they <laughs> ask you, can we do this in the name of security, look down at your pad and always say no. Your initial answer to everything is always say no, and they'll usually go away. He goes, then if they ask you to a second meeting, this time really act engaged, take even more notes, act like you're really thinking about it. And when they ask you, can we do it, say no again. Then if they ask you a third time, <laughs> then come to me and we'll consider it. But, but that's essentially how we did security in the 90s. Here's the problem today. Technology is so easy to acquire. You can move data to the cloud for $79 a month and put it on your credit card. So yeah. this whole idea of corporate reporting and channeling, I mean, it's out. P people can do what they want. So if you go in and you say no, they're going to do it anyway. And your WhatsApp example is a perfect example. So what I would have done there is I would have said, absolutely, you have a problem that you need to solve. But before we go down WhatsApp, can you tell me what's the problem you're trying to solve? Because there might be a better way. There might be something that allows mm -hmm. you to be even more productive and helpful in that process and go in and sort of solve it that way where you say, okay, let's not go in with solution mind. Let's figure out root cause problem. And then most of the time we can go in and figure out a solution. Now, now let's say that we won't and, and WhatsApp's the best. In that situation, I would then go back and say, okay, here's the risks involved with that. You might think that it's encrypted between parties, but it gets decrypted at the endpoints and there's still exposure factors. So my recommendation is to put this policy in place that says you're not going to do it for any sensitive data. And then just so you know, Mr. or Mrs. Executive, I'm going to go in and write, my team's going to write this up and we're going to transfer the risk to you. So mm -hmm. at the next board meeting, I'm going to always go in and I have a five minute area where I go in and talk about risk transfer. So I'm going to go in and say, uh, Vice President Ashley wants to use WhatsApp. We let her know some of the risks and concerns. We gave her alternatives and she needs to run her business. So we're going to support her in running it. But just so the board recognizes, this is the risk that her team is accepting, and here's what we recommend to mitigate it, and then she has to determine whether that budget makes sense or not. So now what we're doing is we're playing the role of the honest broker, where we're giving you all the information you need to make decisions, and if you and the board decide to still do it anyway, because let's face it, in order to run a business, you got to take risks. So that this idea that security people think that we should be risk-free and any time a VP is taking a risk, that's crazy. No, that's how you run a business. I mean, that, that, that's how you grow. Our job as security people is to explain to them the risk in terms they understand. And then if they choose to accept it, even though you don't like it, you're letting them make the decision, but you're making everyone aware that they accepted that risk and not you. Because our job is not 
to make the organization 100% secure. Our job is to make everyone aware of the risks so they can decide whether they want to take those risks or not. Yeah, risk management rather than just like building the Great Wall and just blocking it all. So, yeah, yeah and I think that that really ties back to, you know, making sure that the business unit has skin in the game, that it's, you know, and I think to be fair, the security team is risk averse because they know the responsibility for the ransomware laced PDF or the malicious link is going to is going to fall on them. Um, but I think I like that idea of risk transfer. I think that makes a lot of sense if you were to couple it with the KPI model also. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, my rule that I always train my staff and train CISOs on, and it just helps you think about things, if security negatively affects the business, security is wrong. And, and you just have to recognize right. that if you're going to go in and you're going to cost the company money, you're going to cost the company clients and you're going to cost the company revenue and profitability. You need to recognize from the CEO, COO and executive team's perspective, you are always going to be wrong. So if you go in and approach it as we're going to allow you to make money, win new clients and grow the business, mm -hmm. but we're going to make you aware of the risks and give you solutions so you can make better decisions. That's to me how we win as a strategic cybersecurity thinker. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that makes sense that you're going to have to tie what is the risk management protocol? What is the security you're in place that is going to enable better customer experience, drive growth, enable agility, not just lock it down and, you know, tighten all the windows and no. not let anyone out of the house. Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes sense. That's that's very uh, it's very sensible. And yet here we are talking about it because I feel like it's not it's not happening. Is that just a cultural inertia? Is that like feels like we're dealing with lots of really big competing forces. We're dealing with security teams that, as you pointed out, are largely technical and maybe don't see the business side. We're dealing with corporate structures that are left over from the 90s where you could have these clear divisions and approvals. I mean, what's the, what is your sense of the big picture in terms of um, the factors that we're wrestling with? It, to me, I think it comes down to a lot of cultural issues where security was always sort of this little kingdom that was isolated and, and a bunch of in the server room that, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that never really communicated or, or trained people up and was sort of this isolated unit. And, and to me, it's it's what I go in and call that the fundamental problem is what I call the second question. And, and what I mean by the second question is this. Most executives, people, when they make decisions they ask one question. And the question they always ask is, what is the value or benefit? So if, if you're executive, what's the value or benefit of using WhatsApp? What's the value or benefit of putting mm. an Alexa in your home? What's the value or benefit of setting up a new website? And when you ask that one question, you're always going to be driven by functionality. And if there's value benefit to the organization, you're always going to say yes. To me as security people, we need to train executives to ask a second question. And the second question is, what is the risk or exposure? What is the risk or exposure to the business? And then if they can go in and honestly look me in the eyes and say, Eric, we know this is the value and benefit. We know this is the risk and exposure, but we feel this value and benefit is so great that we are willing to accept this risk or exposure. Then honestly, I'm happy. Right? Because yeah. it's, the, it's the awareness that's critical and the awareness that's important. To me, 
the thing we have to avoid is what happened with Alexa, where everybody is like, this is so cool. Alexa, what's the weather? Play some music. And everyone puts Alexa in their house. And then two or three years later, they start asking the question going, wait a second. Alexa's <laughs> listening to everything I'm saying. Alexa's recording. And now all of a sudden people are ripping Alexa out of the house because they asked the second question too late. So to me, what I always try to do when I work with companies is let their executives and folks be self-sufficient and train them on how to ask that second question. Because at the end of the day, as security people, as long as somebody is fully aware of what the risks and exposures are, then we're good. Right, because risks are necessary in business. The thing right. I don't like are the blind risk where they don't think there's any exposures and they do it anyway. Right. Oh, that's a really good. That's a really good framework. Um, because bringing risk to the level of your front consciousness is going to make you more aware of the behaviors that are that are um, maladaptive to that technology. That's a good point. Cool. Well, that is the time that we have dr eric cole thank you so much for lending your time and expertise we really appreciate it uh george and ashley it was a pleasure and thank you so much for having me on the show and that wraps another episode of the zero hour brought to you by safeguard cyber many thanks to kai crow getty for sound design and post-production to matthias cephaletti for our theme music and as ever, to our guests for lending their valuable time and expertise and insights. Stay safe, stay strong. This is The Zero Hour, signing off. Until next time.